Hello, welcome to this episode of the Power Podcast. Earlier this year, we had some conversations with advocates who work in various roles for power. The idea behind these chats was to talk to some of our staff about what got them into advocacy, why it's so important, and to get to know some of the people who work for power. 26th to the 30th of October 2020 is Advocacy Awareness Week. And so we decided that this would be a good time to release these podcasts so that you, the listener, can find out a bit more about what we do. In this episode, we speak to Amanda, who works as a relevant person's paid representative in Nottinghamshire. The other voice you'll hear is my colleague, Ben, who also works in Nottinghamshire as a community development worker. Stay tuned to hear Amanda talk about growing up as a hippie child, her work in health and social care, and some great tips for self-care and mindfulness. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So the the first thing I want to ask you, Amanda, is is not very related to health and social care, but it sounds awesome. So I've I've heard a story about you being at the very first Glastonbury. (laughs) So I'm, I'm interested to know what that's about, really. Um, yeah, I've, I went to the very first Glastonbury. I was about five years old at the time, and um, David Bowie played, and it was just in one big field. Um, I'm not quite sure how many people were there. I think maybe 500 or 1,000, and I'm pretty sure it was a free festival at that point as well. Um, and basically, I got lost. So they took me up onto the main stage and basically put me on the front of the stage and basically said, does anyone know whose child this is, which I, I don't think would actually be allowed these days. But uh, nobody came to claim me. So I ended up in the police station. And so I turned up at the police station, this grubby little child, hippie child with no shoes on. And uh, when my mum came to collect me about three hours later, I got a doll to play with. I was eating chocolate. I'd been given some shoes and I cried and said I didn't want to go back to Glastonbury. I wanted to stay with the police. <laughs> That's an incredible story. I went to many, many more with my mum after that, and uh, fortunately, I didn't get lost again. Amazing. When you said nobody came to collect you, I thought you were going to tell me that you'd been adopted by David Bowie. Uh, now that would have been an even better story. He is, <laughs> <a hero. laughs> he is, yeah, no, he's mine too. That's a pretty awesome fact to have. So, kind of, I've got a loose schedule of of questions, and we're just gonna just gonna go through them if that's okay, and ask ask you a little bit about why you do what you do. So. Um, was there a particular life event that sort of in- inspired you to get into health and social care or, or, or did you, you know, have you always wanted to get into this type of work? Mm, no, not really. It was a very long progression for me, really. So I worked for 25 years as a cost specialist. So I worked for lots of different solicitors on a freelance basis. Um, I was earning lots of money. Um, I was my own boss. I could work whenever I wanted. So in some ways that would seem like quite ideal. But I didn't get any passion from it, you know. It's just not where my heart lies. I'm a real people person. And about 20 years ago, I thought, right, I just need to, like, retrain myself. It took me 20 years to get to this point. So I started off, I did a BA honours degree in psychology with the Open University. I did some counselling qualifications, some mindfulness training. I qualified as a hypnotherapist. And then in 2013... 
I qualified as a bereavement counsellor with Cruise Bereavement Care, which is the largest bereavement uh, charity in the UK. So I started working with clients um, September 2013 for Cruise, and I absolutely loved my client work. So I was just sort of going through the motions all day at work and loving this client work that I was doing with Cruise. Um, but there's no money in it because there's no paid work with Cruise. It's all done on a completely voluntary basis. So then I was sort of trying to think about where I could go, where I could have the client work, but also utilising sort of my legal background as well. And um, power was actually quite an obvious choice for me. And the, the main reason, in fact, actually, that I was attracted to power, apart from the fact that it had client work and could also employ sort of like my legal skills, was um, my experiences with my son, Luke. Um, now, Luke was born in 1993, and he had a very, very rare, uh, he had a very rare disease called infantile neuroaxonal dystrophy. So Luke was profoundly physically and mentally disabled. Um, he never was able to walk or talk. He needed an awful lot of specialist um, professional help. And I had to advocate for him with a lot of health professionals. And I think through that, I got a real empathy for others that were in a vulnerable position, you know, and a real insight into issues faced by people and families with disabilities. And just a real, like, belief that it was important for the most vulnerable in society to have a voice. So when I was looking for more voluntary work to just to sort of like, you know, upskill my voluntary stuff, you know, power was just like a real, real obvious choice for me. So in 2018, I met Ben and I started as a volunteer for power. And I, uh, I couldn't believe my luck. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, uh, I mean, my role is to um, recruit and manage the volunteers for our community advocacy service. And um, a lot of the volunteers um, were only coming on sort of a short term basis. A lot of them were students and were just doing it in their term time, things like that. But when Amanda came, she seemed very de dedicated and like indicated that she wanted to kind of move in that way in careers. Is that right, Amanda? You were like, yeah, definitely. I was sort of, I was so nervous about going to work for anybody after having been my boss, own boss for such a long time. I sort of, I was a bit sneaky, really. I thought, well, if I want to work for an organisation, the best thing to do is to volunteer for them first so that I can sort of get an insight into the structure, the teams, you know, the policies, you know, just the whole like environment. So yeah, that's what I did. So when you when you kind of first started at Power as um, as, a, as a was it part time when you when you began working for well, when, us when I start when I started as a volunteer in January eighteen we actually ran um, a community advocacy service there whereby we would see clients on an individual basis. So I would be doing things like I'd be um, supporting a signpost and advising people about issues around sort of like housing, debt. Um, I might have attended medication reviews with people, GP appointments, um, you know, just help people fill out forms, um, dealt with antisocial behaviour, that sort of thing, really. 
but now we don't actually have that service of power that's been changed to the peer advocacy support. So I still do some voluntary work for power, but uh, I help run one of the peer support groups rather than work as a community advocate now. Sure. And I, and I think, Ben, you, you could perhaps talk a little bit more about that. But is it, is it the case that the, the community advocacy service was so well well received that so many people were were requesting it that we would just weren't able to do it on a voluntary basis? Um, yeah, well, because we, we used to be traditionally commissioned to provide a community advocacy. Um, but for whatever reason, that funding was withdrawn and, and we had to provide it with our volunteers. And because we were getting so much, um, so many cases and so much, so much interest in the community advocacy service that we just didn't, literally didn't have enough volunteers for each case. And uh, then it caused a long waiting list. Um, so we wanted to find a reason or, or a way of getting, uh, reaching them people and making it more accessible and reducing sort of all the red tape between um, us and the clients. So that's why we took it into the community and started these uh, peer support groups. And it's amazing, really, how when the Mental Health Act changed um, and a lot of the old hospitals and things like that closed down and, and a lot of people with mental health conditions kind of came out into the community rather than being in hospital on a permanent basis. A lot of the groups and a lot of the charities that started up were as a result of people not having those services in the community and, and just basically having to create them themselves. So it's it's a real it's a real kind of grassroots way of working, but it's it's I think it's really good with the peer advocacy groups that people are basically empowering themselves and taking control of their own lives and, and helping each other you know, which is what community is all about. So I, I think it's a fantastic thing and long may it continue. Yeah, and I think we've really seen like little friendship groups build, build up within the peer support groups and the same people like coming again and again and again. And, and, you know, that's just been really lovely to see as well. Yeah, I think we should talk a bit about the Clifton group, uh, which is the group that um, Amanda runs or, or did run before uh, the pandemic. And, um, and it, it is, like you say, a friendship group. And it's it's just, we've got some quite good, amazing stories and, and kind of empowering stories that come out of that group. Do you want to talk a bit about that, Amanda? Yeah, I mean, we've done all sorts of things, really. I mean, what we actually sort of started off doing was just like having a, a group and, and people could just raise any issues that they wanted to. Um, some people like doing that in a group discussion. And, you know, they might be things from issues with um, do, dealing with PIP claims or sometimes, you know, um, discrimination of, of, from being disabled or sometimes you can have like really quite very serious discussions about abuse um, and, and counselling and, and sort of other sort of services people have been able to access. And it's quite amazing how there's always somebody that has an answer for somebody's question because, you know, everyone's sort of had similar sort of things or, or there's enough people there, you know, for, for them to be an answer. I mean, there's, there was one case that we had with um, a lady who had a problem with hoarding and we brought in some... Well, her husband brought in some photographs of the house and we did sort of like a bit of an exposure sort of discussion around that. And from having the photos in front of her and being able to 
talk them through with other people. She sort of had more of an understanding and awareness of what was going on. And the council had, in fact, threatened to come and clear her house if she hadn't, didn't sort it out. But after that session, she did actually go back and she managed to make some progress herself and, and avoided the council getting involved, which was really good. Uh, we've had another person there that... Um, felt really unconfident going out shopping so we've done like a lot of role play so we brought in different products and a little till and paper money and uh, yeah just went through the motions about the sort of scenario that you would expect when you went in the shop and that's made her feel a lot more confident in being able to do that by herself so that's just a couple of examples anyway. I mean I've, I've met that woman um, who you're talking about and it, you, you've seen such a big change in her, well I have anyway, from the first time I met her, you know what I mean, until like months after, she's a lot more confident, she seems a bit more independent, I mean, I know before she was quite dependent on her partner for things like shopping, it caused her a lot of anxiety just even going in the shop yeah, uh, and, and handling money, but you can tell that like, she's such a lovely woman and she's just tr trying to sort of improve herself and, and, and like kind of self-advocate and yeah, that, I think there's some incredible, incredible examples of what can be achieved through um, a group of people getting together with the good intentions of, of helping one another get get through a situation. And, and at a time when, you know, kind of funding has been hard to come by in, in certain areas of society, it's brilliant that people can work together and do something, you know, to, to plug that gap. Yeah, I think we've got um, we've got seven groups now. I think that's right, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, seven. Including one which has just been set up by um, uh, Shakira, who who helps me run the Clifton group, who's which is a women only group. So I'm looking forward to that actually being able to operate in person, hopefully very soon. Definitely. So obviously the, the elephant in the room is always the, the coronavirus lockdown at the moment. Obviously the groups where people are physically going and meeting up have been put on hold at the minute. So is, is there anything at the moment sort of been put in place to try and make up for that? Yeah, so um, like you say, the face-to-face -face, uh, non-essential contact has, has stopped for pretty much most services. So uh, the way we've got around that is we've turned to um, online support. So take the group online. So we, we've got a Power Nottingham page called Empower Nottingham. And within that, we've started our own Empower group. So it's essentially just like the face-to-face -face groups that Amanda runs and is involved with. But we interact over Facebook. Um, and we can do that through voice calls, video calls, or just by messaging. Um, and it's also a platform for us to share information, especially what's going on with COVID-19. When lockdown first happened and this first came about and people were self-isolating and who were vulnerable, I think there was a big grey area of, of where they could get support, what services are still operating and what changes in the delivery of the services have happened. And I think they a lot of people turned to Facebook to kind of get them answers initially. So, there's, you know, there's a, lots of different uh, COVID-19 mutual aid groups. So we wanted to kind of put ourselves there to be the first port of call of any sort of information and advice about how to support vulnerable people during this time in the community. For example, things like um, shopping, food parcels, um, how, how to register as a vulnerable person, um, carer support, think, all things like that. And I think 
it's really connected us with not just our client base but also the wider community during this time so I think it's been quite a positive to draw out of this situation. I mean Amanda what has Cruiser's response been to COVID-19 are you still actively volunteering for them are you still got cases just over the phone or I mean how has it affected you? Um, I'm not actually doing anything actively for them at the moment. Um, obviously, all face-to-face -face support has been stopped. Um, some people are offering telephone support, and uh, I'm not actually trained to do telephone support. It's not actually something that, that I've ever been found very easy. I much prefer to be with somebody and be able to, like, you know, have their body language and, and, and all of that. Um, so, no, it's not something that I'm actually doing at the moment, but they are rolling out some telephone support for the bereavement volunteers. They've just done one area, I think, at the moment, but it's going to be rolled out nationally. So when that's available, I'm going to do that and then hopefully um, I'll start like offering some telephone support to some new clients. I mean, I've just read something this morning that says that um, the UK are now the highest death rate in, uh, in Europe. Yeah. And I'm sure cruise is going to be one of the most central services that people are going to need to get through, yeah. especially if they've lost loved ones or they know people, they work with people that they've lost. Yeah, there's going to be so many traumatic like situations as well, isn't there? You know, because people haven't been able to be with the person that they love when they're dying. You know, and and that. That to me, I think that people are just going to really, really struggle with that. And I think people are really going to struggle with the fact that, you know, they may well feel that some of these deaths could have been preventable as well if the government had acted differently or whether, you know, PPE had been more widely available. So I think there's going to be a lot of issues, rightly or wrongly, in people's minds. What I've noticed is that um, COVID-19 is, is just at the tip of everyone's tongue at the moment, but people are dying anyway. It just for natural. So I um, actually um, have a friend whose dad died of a heart attack, completely unrelated to COVID-19. But obviously she couldn't go, you know, there's the funeral situation, she couldn't go see her family. And going through that bereavement process in this time must be very, very difficult because it's just you just don't have that connection with other people that you can get support from your loved ones around you. So you're sort of quite isolated and alone. That's right. You could end up being at home on your own, totally, having lost your partner of 50 years with nobody, you know, not being able to have any physical contact with anyone. And that, you know, that just sounds absolutely heartbreaking to me. Yeah. I mean, it's um, such an issue for everybody at the moment, but specifically people who've lost someone. To, to have to go through that um, alone is, you know, is, is so upsetting. And I think that the fact that services are adapting um to, you know with with the telephone support like you say is is a really good thing is that a key part of the bereavement process amanda like actual not physical touch but having that connection with other people i think that um with grief you know the important thing to do is to process it not repress it um, and the best way that you can process it is by talking to somebody. Now, I mean, some people may feel that just being able to talk on the phone, you know, is helpful. But I don't know about you, but if I was feeling like that, I'd just want some sort of physical, like, reassurance, I think, as well. And just people around you, you know, being able to see a friendly face, having someone over dinner, you know, just going for a walk with somebody. You know, they're all sort of things that, that would be really helpful that people just can't do at the moment. It's like you need that normality, that routine as well. And because everyone's routine and 
is just completely different and during this time it just it just seems like an alien world so in terms of your work at power then amanda so yeah. in in addition to the, the self-help groups and the advocacy groups what what is it what's your role on a on a day-to-day basis for power okay well i'm employed by power as um a paid representative so i represent people who've been deprived of their liberty under the mental capacity act so that could be people that have um, been deprived of their liberty for their in their best interest because that's the best option for them maybe because they have learning difficulties mental health issues um, acquired brain injuries uh, a lot of my clients have got dementia so they tend to be either in care homes or in smaller residential home settings uh, or specialist hospitals. So everybody that is deprived of their liberty under the Mental Capacity Act has to have a representative. Now, the local authority will see if there's anyone appropriate and willing within the family or friends first. And if there isn't, they have a duty to appoint a paid representative, which is where I would come in. So. As part of my job, I visit the person regularly. So maybe, you know, if people are a little bit unsettled, maybe every month or people that are much more settled, that could be every three or four months. Um, Yeah, so visit them regularly, check through their care plans, talk to the staff. But most importantly of all, you know, have some time with the person themselves and just sort of see how they're getting on. It's a quite, it's like a safeguarding role, I guess, really. Uh, if they're settled, all very well and good. Um, if they're not, then my role is to help them explain what rights they've got underneath the deprivation of liberty and help them exercise those rights and actually challenge their placement through the Court of Protection if they really are very unhappy there. Uh, and sometimes my clients will be non-verbal, so they won't actually be able to directly tell me that. So it will be a case of, you know, observing um, their behaviours, their body language, how they interact with staff, me, their environment, and how consistent that is and how it changes. Do you enjoy it, Amanda? I do, I do. I really like it, yeah. I mean, I do it on a part-time basis, and I think that that works really well for me because I've got quite a lot of other stuff that I do as well. Um and also it keeps me fresh with it as well, you know. I've, I am very committed to my clients and uh, I would hate to feel like I was ever in a position where I was just ticking boxes, you know. I, I really like to spend quality time with them. I mean, you're on common ground, really. I mean, because me, myself and Tom were both relevant persons, paid representatives, before we took our new roles. And uh, for me, anyway, I, I loved it. I took so much enjoyment connecting with um, them sort of people and trying to get their voice heard and, and making sure that they're okay is just it's really uh, rewarding even if they don't remember me from the last time it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter if they tell me the same stories they've told me many times before for that moment that I'm with them you know we're having a connection and, and we're you know it's it's really lovely on both sides I think and you know hopefully when I go away you know they feel like there has been some sort of quality interaction there really are there any cases that spring to mind where you've had a really good outcome? Um, there's a couple that immediately spring to mind. One that was a while ago and one which is very much more recent and within the sort of context of COVID. So the one that was a while ago, um, I was a representative for a guy 
in his 50s with mental health issues and he was living in a residential placement so with about 20 other people but he'd been in his own home prior to that but you know had a bit of a deterioration in his mental health which meant that he really needed to go into residential but he was really bored he was really frustrated and it just felt that he was becoming you know he'd actually been looking after himself earlier. he was becoming de-skilled and he was being institutionalized so basically I worked with his social worker and the home we got him quite a lot of one-to-one hours and then really sat down and developed quite a detailed plan to develop his living skills and in addition to that I got I put his key worker in touch with a local cafe that I knew really encouraged people with um, learning disabilities and mental health to work as volunteers and he got a job in the cafe and his Uh, living skills and his confidence everything just completely skyrocketed and in the end he was able to move out of that residential setting into supported living and so he now lives in a home with just one other person and he has a much less restrictive life and and is able to do you know so much more that he wants to do and it was a real life-changing experience for him actually. More recently in the context of COVID, I've got a client who's in her early 70s with mental health issues and she went into hospital with a UTI at the end of March and she came back to the care home with a do not attempt to resuscitate on her care plan. Now apparently nobody was involved in that process now because she doesn't have mental capacity around that decision the correct process would be to either involve a family member or an independent advocate now she has no family and no independent advocate was consulted now I've known her for a long time for probably about 18 months and from what I know of her I knew that if she understood there's absolutely no way would she want a do not attempt to resuscitate being on her care plan so in the end, I basically I got in touch with her GP. Um, we discussed the, the issues ourselves and the fact the correct process hadn't been followed and that in any event, I didn't think it was appropriate. And the GP agreed to tear it up. So that has now been removed from her care plan. How did you find out that she wouldn't want that DNA or like she would have been adamant against it? Well, I didn't know that she would have been adamant against it, but she has a daughter that she visits every week who is in another care home and you know that is her her, you know that is the main focus of her life and that's what she talks about all the time and I just sort of felt you know you've got to think about the daughter's right for her mother as well haven't you as well as um, her right to see her daughter and she never indicated to me ever that she she would want to go down the line of a do not attempt to resuscitate you know she she is actually objecting to her placement and it's in the court of protection at the moment i, I mean it, this is a really emotive issue um, and it's something that's come up quite a lot since the coronavirus started in your sort of contact with care homes have you found a lot of do not attempt resuscitate documents have been put in place for clients no i haven't to be honest that's the first that's the only one that i've come across so far um, I think there was quite a big outcry, wasn't there, a few weeks ago when it sort of it, it had originated at some um, care homes in Wales, and it really got into the national press. And I don't know whether people just had a bit of an about turn after that, but it's certainly not something that I've come across apart from this one incident so far. 
Sure, that's it. I, th- I think it's something something that as advocates we we feel quite strongly, and we're trying to be quite vigilant about at the moment because of the the coronavirus that that people you know we don't find an increase in do not attempt resuscitate orders that haven't been you know haven't had the correct consultation from from family or or an imca yeah i think as a team we are now routinely checking whether there are any dnars on the client's files and um just finding out when they were done who was consulted just to, to, to double check that everything is correct definitely Amanda, I was just wondering, um, especially now with COVID and the sort of lockdown and things like that, whether you've got any tips for good mental health and and things that you're able to do to keep yourself on an even keel when you're feeling a little bit down, as we probably all are at the moment. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I do, as a hypnotherapist, I do quite a lot of self-hypnosis. So if I start going in a bit of a downward spiral with anything, I'm quite good at sort of like um, talking myself out of it. What I found most helpful for me at the moment is walking. So in the morning before I start work, I get up at half six and I go and walk for an hour. And um, when I first started doing this, I'd just be like tromping around thinking about all the like things that I had to do with work that day. But now I've just sort of stopped doing that and I just try and like really mindfully walk. So I'm like a right hippie now, but like really like feeling like my feet on the ground and just noticing all the nature behind me. I'm really lucky that I live really near to a local park, which is really high up and you can see the whole of Nottingham below you so walking up there like when the sun's rising for like an hour and there's just nobody up there whatsoever no I, I can relate to that Walk, walking is kind of um my my mindfulness thing I guess and I've I've noticed since since this started there's so many more birds I, I mean I don't know if I don't know if it's because um I'm just more in tune because I don't go out as often or whether there is genuinely an, an, an increase in the amount of wildlife but it's so good and it's so soothing, isn't it, to go out and notice that? Yeah, I think it's a lot of that is to do with the fact that there's less other noise around as well, isn't there? I was noticing when I was driving in the car to the supermarket the other day, I could actually hear the birds, even though all my windows were closed. And I think that's because there was hardly any traffic on the road. So Sure. So, <laughs> just, just going back to the self-hypnosis then, um, Amanda, obviously that's something that you're um, qualified to do um, and I, I wouldn't have the first idea about but are there any resources around that that could help people that, that don't have that knowledge of it you know is are there any kind of uh, tools on the internet that people could use to get into that well yeah I guess that there must be um, to be honest I, I really don't know like off the top of my head but there's an, I t- there are what there are is an awful lot of um, stuff on YouTube so if you want like to say if you typed in something like um, self-hypnosis for anxiety YouTube you get loads of different recordings and you can literally just put the headphones into your ears and go. I did actually um, some hot training with Harmless this week on suicide intervention and there was um, one tool which was actually really excellent training there was one tool which is actually created by Mind and that's called the five ways to well-being, which is like sort of a set of evidence-based actions that promote um, mental health and well-being. And they are learn, so learn something new, connect, so connect with other people, be active, take notice, and finally give. 
and I think that give that that's something that really helps me I think that um, for me personally if I want to feel better then I you know I try to do something that lifts up somebody that I feel like needs it or is, is in a bit of a worse position than me Thanks again to Amanda for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about Cruise Bereavement, you can check out Power's podcast where we interviewed Joe from Cruise, or you can ring the National Helpline, which is 0808 808 1677. If you want to learn more about Power, you can check out our website at www.power.net. That's www.power.net. Thank you for listening.